if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to Colossians 1, 15. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And, it, you know, if you don't have a Bible or you don't own one or you don't like the one you own or something like that, we've got free ones by that door. You can grab one on the way out and it's yours. You, you own it. Um, but he'll, any, any passage that we do, Matt will put up on the screen as well. But if you've not been coming, we've been going through the book of Colossians, verse by verse by verse. Um, and we're just a few weeks in. And the whole theme of Colossians is how Jesus is preeminent over everything. He's king. He's he's. Overall, he's first in rank above all things. We did it where he was king over the gospel, how it grows deep and wide. We talked about how Jesus was king over behavior, even our own behavior and how we act. And this week I wanted to talk to you about how Jesus is king over creation. And uh, I love this. I, I, for those of you who don't know, I went to school for biochemistry. Don't be impressed. It hangs on a wall. I don't do anything with it now. And, and it's not like I was all that great at it when I was doing it. But my minor was in evolution. And this was before I knew the Lord. And, uh, and before I cared, I mean, I was not, I grew up in a church, I grew up in a, in a southern culture, um, much like Knoxville, um, so I understood things about God, um, but never had really taken in His glory, so I was just kind of all about the science thing, I just figured that that was, I mean, it's more verifiable, more proof, I'm just going to sign up for that, so I was kind of an atheist, I guess, I guess, I was an evolutionist, and I remember one day, when I radically, radically got saved, and I didn't know Jack, I didn't know passages, I didn't know scriptures, I didn't know anything, but I knew the evolution, what it was being taught to me in a macro form, macro evolution, was totally false. It was totally, that is an explanation for how we came about and a purpose behind our lives was totally false. And so I remember one day in class, sitting up like six rows up, there was like 80 students, it was a small school, it was a stadium seating, and uh, I remember the professor, this is so jacked up, I barely remember, but the, pa- the, the pastor, the teacher was up on the chalkboard teaching us something about evolution. It was like Evolution 201. I think it was a second year class. And he was talking, I don't even know what he was talking about, some islands. All I remember is something about islands. And he goes, he turns around and he goes, now if there really was a God, don't you think that he would have done it differently than this? And he just, with a mockery, it was just so thick you could cut it with a knife. And I can't explain it. I cannot explain it. This was not me. And I'm not this kind of a dude. If you know me, you know I'm telling the truth. But I stood up right there in the middle of the class. And all I knew was like some, it was like a psalm I read that morning. It didn't have anything to do with anything. I said, oh yeah? Well, blah, blah. And I just started spilling out what the psalm was. And it was, and I don't even think I got it right. I think I got like half of it right. And then I stopped, and then the awkwardness ensues, you know. So I just kind of sat there and thought, I don't know what to say next. And he goes, get out of here. And I was like, okay. And I'm thinking, man, I just got kicked out of class. But I'm glad because I don't know what I was going to say next, you know. I had no idea what was coming after that. Anyway, that doesn't have a whole lot to do with this, but I, it, did, it, did, it did remind me, whenever I was putting the notes together, it started reminding me of those early days of being in um, a, a very heavily, heavily influenced evolutionary biological environment, you know, and how I was having to deal with all those early questions in my heart. Um, so... If you, that was really a stall to get you to get to Colossians 1.15. Um, let's go ahead and read it. It says this. This is the word of God for us today. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Um, what do you... What do you say whenever you're in a place in life where it feels like God has lost control? I mean, have you ever even felt like that? Because I know I have. Where it seems like he's, the proverbial head is turned and something slips by his care and he's lost control. His will has been frustrated and something happened that wasn't supposed to happen. Something happened that escaped his authority. Something happened that escaped his hands. And we're all victims of it. I mean, have you ever felt like something like that has happened to you? Where God is ultimately not in control of the situation anymore? Because I know I have. I know Job did in the Bible. I know Joseph did. Um, I know the disciples, whenever they were watching Jesus on the cross, they, they, they were not looking at the cross the same way that we look at the cross today. They were thinking, what is going on? This is not the way this was supposed to. God has lost control. Something is out of control. This is all totally out of control. That's what they thought. It could feel like that for me. Sometimes. But how do you pray? How do you talk about it? How do you think about God in those moments? What's your gut reaction in those moments? This passage really helps me understand my posture in those moments. I want to talk about that a little bit today. You know, just to catch you up, Paul is talking to a church he's never even been to before. Paul's never been to Colossae by the time he wrote this. I don't think he ever went. He's talking to a church that was planted. It's a very young church plant. Colossae's very much like Knoxville. Um, a, a person that planted it was a guy that Paul had led to the Lord in another city called Ephesus. This guy planted a few churches right there in the area. It's a very vibrant young church, probably about the same size as this, from what scholars can tell. Not a huge church, right? Just growing, very vibrant. A lot of people are excited. A lot of love exhibited. A lot of deep community. But there were some heretics coming in. And, you know, they didn't all wear black hats, by the way. Heretics didn't have a name badge that say, I'm going to tell you a lie. They were good teachers. They just taught bad things. They were very fluent. They were very informative. They were very influential. All of these things were true. And so things started seeping in to teach bad theology to this very young church. Bad theology is going to give you bad behavior eventually. And we talked about that already. That's kind of a recap. The last two weeks, he was saying, this is my prayer for you as a church. He was talking to them through a prayer, right? We did that two weeks. That is done now. And the next portion, what we just read, is actually a song. You might not have known that. Some of you might have Bibles where it has it written out in stanzas rather than a paragraph form. But that's actually a hymn. It has two stanzas to it. So he finishes with a prayer, and he's about to get rowdy with them. He's about to start throwing some blows as far as bad teaching. And then he just breaks into a hymn. You know, a song. Like a musical or something. Like Oklahoma, you know. They're all talking normal about something. A switchblade comes out like in West Side Story. And then someone breaks out in a song, you know. And that's why guys don't watch musicals too, by the way. Because that's just silly. So... That's what's going on. Probably not really. But I do find it interesting that he is making this magnificent, colossal statement, right? And, and Colossians is filled with colossal statements. He does not start with a jab. He starts off with an uppercut. Whenever he is dealing with these heretics, dealing with this heresy, he's getting it all out there fast. He's dealing with something very quick. That's kind of the recap. That's trying to catch you up. He wastes no time 
and this big sweeping overture. Because the one thing that was being threatened right now is the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And Paul said, "Uh uh-uh, we're not messing that up. That has to be right. This is who he is. This is what he does. This is what he did. The two stanzas, the first one is creation. Next week it's redemption or, or recreation. I guess you could say that. So you have creation and then a new creation. Those would be the two stanzas. This is what E.F. Scott, he's a, he's a very good theologian. He says this about this specific passage. He said, This passage represents a loftier concept of Christ and his person than is found anywhere else in all of Paul's writings. Norman Geisler says, No comparable listing of so many characters of Christ and His deity are found in any other scriptural passage anywhere. I mean, this is, this is a, a, definitely a bookmark passage, right? And that's because still today, creation is pushed on. Still today, Jesus is pushed on. I mean, it wasn't just then that the doctrine of Jesus Christ was under attack. It's under attack today. I mean, we have more weird versions of who Jesus Christ is today than we've ever had in human history. There are more weird versions of what Jesus did, said, and was than there ever were. There's more weird... I mean, creation, too. There's more weird versions of how things came about than ever before. I mean, now there's not just an evolutionary theory. There's multiple evolutionary theories. Multiple alien views. Multiple, what, multiple Christian views. Multiple, and everything in between. Right? Paul knew that. It's good for them then. It's good for us now. So I just want to unpack a little bit about this. And then I want to talk about why it even matters for us today. Where's the so what value of this passage? It has to matter to us today. I mean, that's why Christ gave it to us. In Hebrews 1, it says this. And this is a good partner passage with this. It talks about how, just like in the first part of Colossians, it says that He is the image of the invisible God. The image of something that was invisible. Jesus Christ was a visible portrayal of something that has forever, up until that point, been very invisible. In Hebrews it says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So now we have it twice. We have it in Colossians and we have it in Hebrews. How it talks about Jesus was the very visible image. He took something that was invisible and he made it very visible by walking amongst us. By putting on our skin and breathing our air and speaking our language. In John 1 it says this. No one has ever seen God but the one and the only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. Now the unique thing about the images is we too were created in God's image. We were created in God's image. It says it in Genesis. Right? But Jesus was God's image. And it sounds like I'm splitting hairs, doesn't it? It sounds like I'm just swapping out a couple little words and it shouldn't make any difference. But it makes a big difference. Think about a coin. If I had like a penny, there is an impression on that penny of Abe Lincoln. Right? Am I right? Okay, gosh. Okay, Abe Lincoln is on the penny. But, so that is, that is an image of Abe Lincoln. But that's not Abe Lincoln. That's not the same thing. If I were to show you that penny, that's just a, that's just a little bit of a representation, a symbolic thing. Something that is a, a, a copy of. But if I were to walk Abe Lincoln, I know it's not possible, but if I were to walk Abe Lincoln in here, that's different. He's not just made in the image, he is the image. That's the difference between our relationship with the image of God and Christ's relationship with the image of God. I know this sounds very high church. I know this sounds very high theology. It all makes a big difference. I'm about to get to it. Christ was not a feeble copy. 
It was not some Xeroxed copy with all the trash and the garbage in it and all the imperfections. That's us. <laughs> That's what sin did to us. That's what we are. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. He doesn't have this. This is Paul talking to another church. And he says, this is what's written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The second and last Adam became a life-giving spirit. He's connecting Jesus and man, both in this passage. And he's doing it in relation to God and being in the image of God. Right. So Adam, the first Adam... There's a lot of times in the Bible where Jesus is called... Not a lot. There's a handful of times in the Bible where Jesus is called the second Adam or the last Adam. And so you have the first Adam that all of his progeny right, are born naturally, born in the flesh. Jesus, all of his progeny are born in the spirit. They're spirit. That's all he's saying. But they're saying they're both in the image of God. So why is this important? Richard Mellick says this. Jesus bore the image of the earthly Adam and the image of the heavenly God. He was the unique manifestation of both. So why would, why would God go through all of this trouble to explain to us, image this and image that? He is the image and he's made in the image and he is the image. And Why would God do that? It's because he needed to be a perfect substitute for us. The substitute nature of what Jesus did for us had to be perfect. There couldn't be any blemishes, any cracks. He had to be perfectly the exact imprint of God himself, yet he still needed to be us. He wasn't just half man and half God. He was fully man and he was fully God. And that's why there's any value at all given to what he did for us, his passion for us. That's the only reason it even makes any sense. And here you have Jesus, who's fully man. And you have Jesus, who's fully God, with one hand on God and the other hand on man. And it makes sense. And it's the only way it can make sense. That's why he's going through all of this trouble. And that's why he starts off this sweeping thing. That's why Paul spends his time saying, he is the image of the invisible God. He starts off like that because this is where heresy leans into it. Usually when heresy will leak into a doctrine like the one of Jesus, they either make him less man or less God. You'll either have this weird ratio where he's like 80% God and 20% man. Or you'll have like he's mostly man and he's got a little bit of God. If you, if you fall into any of those two categories, you're going to be in big trouble because neither one of those are right and they spawn very bad belief. It actually wrecks everything. If you have a system where you've got so much God and there's not very much man, then you've got a deal where you've got this... this Jesus, but he's more like a spirit. He doesn't really feel your pain, right? He's not really tempted. I mean, come on. He's not really tempted. He's God. How can God be tempted, you know? And so he's so high that he can't understand you and you can't understand him. He's so far from you because he's so much God and he's not very much man that it makes it this big breach in between you and the person of Jesus. And I'll tell you, as I grew up, this is the view I had. I had a very distant view of Jesus Christ. He was so much God and not much man at all. It was very difficult for me to fall in love with something like that. It was, because then I see the picture of the cross, and you've got Jesus hanging on it. And I'm almost thinking, like, that's for show. Like, that didn't really hurt him, because he's God. He's so much God, that couldn't have hurt. 
Like he's, like he's on the cross saying, come on God, let's make this look good. Let's do this whole sin exchange thing. And, and but I'll put on a good show because I'm God. I know I can't feel anything. But that's not the truth. The truth is, is he felt all of that. The wrath that was poured out and meant for you and meant for me, he didn't just deflect it with like some magic shield. He absorbed it. He felt all of that. He was abandoned like you've been abandoned. He's been neglected like you've been neglected. He, he was, you know, all covered up with, with all kinds of different emotions like you've been covered up. He, he actually went through everything you've ever been through except he's never sinned. He's very, very much fully man, just as much as he is fully God. And that's a very, very important part of understanding his deity. Some people think that he's so much man and not very much God. Then they strip the Godhead right out of him. They rob the deity right out of Jesus Christ. That too is a problem. Because then it just means he was a good teacher, a good prophet, or one of a bunch of good prophets. Enter Scientology. Enter Jehovah's Witness. Enter Buddhism. Enter... I mean, or enter anything where Jesus is just a character. Baha'i. You know, I mean, any kind of weird thing in between. you got these weird religions where you just have... Jesus is just a character and he's cool and all, but he didn't really do it. I mean, he wasn't really fully God. It's also heresy. It's also a problem. And it says right here, right after that, I'm going to unpack this too. It says that he was firstborn... The firstborn of all creation. What does that mean? Does it mean he was born first? It doesn't because he was not created. This is not a time stamp. When it says firstborn, we think of that naturally. I probably, you probably thought the same thing I did. That means he was born before everyone else. That's what we use it. I mean, Jordan's my firstborn, you know? So I understand that this, this is not a time stamp. This is not in order. This is actually supremacy in rank. Whenever they would say something like firstborn, that means they are highest in rank above all ranks. They are highest in estimation of all estimations to be made. That's what that means. I mean, in the Psalms, I think it's like the 85th or the 86th. Psalm, it talks about how King David is the firstborn among all kings. That just means he was the first in rank. He was the most preeminent of all the kings. He wasn't created. Jesus wasn't created. But he was born through a virgin. So you can see where the heresy could creep in really fast. They're looking at Jesus who came up with a mother that they all knew. They're looking at a Jesus that came up that grew up in a small town was born in an even smaller one. So you've got this Jesus that everyone was very familiar with. And here he came out of a womb like you and I did. And so the heresy naturally goes, he was created just like I was. Can't be very much God, he's just a man. So they stripped the deity. The very thing is, is he existed before he was even born through a virgin. He's always been Jesus. He's always been at the right hand of God. He was never created. It actually says that right there in the same verse too. Um, and I'm, uh, it says, <clears throat> and look at the last part of that verse. Can you put Colossians up? Oh, it is there. It says this. We see the proof where it says that he is before all things in the very last part of that. Is that up there already? There it is. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he is the firstborn, but he's also before all things. You can't be before creation and part of creation at the same time. So he is actually before all of creation. He is above all of creation. If you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness come to your door, this is going to be the biggest distinction between the language that you're speaking and the language that they're speaking. They're nice people. They really are. I mean, I've never been, I've never felt like a Jehovah's Witness attacked me or anything like that. Okay? It's just never really happened. They're nice people, but their understanding of Jesus is that He is not God at all. He is something that God loved. He is something very special. 
um, but he is not fully God. So you have something to where he is part of creation. So when a Jehovah's Witness looks at you as a Protestant believer, they would say that you believe in many gods because they, they deny any account of the Trinity. They don't believe in the Trinity at all, right? And so if you were to take them, and this is just for your... You can always take them to the first chapter of three books, Hebrews 1, John 1, and Colossians 1. Those are the, That's the trifecta of all the passages in the Bible that talks about how Jesus Christ is God. They All three of them say that. That's easy, but they'll bring out a Bible. This is all for free. They'll bring out a Bible. It's called the New World Translation. Okay, The New World Translation is very distinct. It's only for Jehovah's Witnesses. And what they do is they go back in and they change those words. It's altered. It's an altered version of the Bible to align with their doctrine. The difference between that and what a Protestant Christian does is we get our doctrine to line up with the Bible. They've swapped that. They said, this doesn't agree with what we believe. It's Jehovah's Witness. So we're going to rewrite just those chunks of the scripture and it's going to line up. So I remember in Tampa... When I was there and I was mowing the lawn or something and these three women came up, Jehovah's Witness, they were real sweet and they wanted to talk to me and I said, yeah, I'm not really into that. I believe, and I said, here, you got a Bible, let me see your Bible, I'm going to show you something. So I turned to Hebrews 1, because that's the game closer right there. So I turned to Hebrews 1 and then John 1 and I started reading it out loud and I was like, wait a minute, that's not, and they said, see? There it says right there. And I thought, yeah, but this isn't right. I don't remember it going like this. And so I flipped to another passage, John 1, and then Colossians 1. And then I realized that they rewrote those passages. You're talking a different language. So you just know that so that whenever you talk to one of the future, your Bible's not going to line up with theirs. That's why. But at least you have those passages for yourself. It matters. Because if he was created, he can't be God. If Jesus Christ was created, he can't be God. And if he's not God, he can't be a perfect sacrifice. That's why it matters. That's why these little, little nuances, these little shifts can bring birth to a heresy that could really wreck you. Because without a perfect sacrifice, you're in big trouble. You're still trying to figure out how to clean yourself up. If there's no sacrifice that did it for you, you're still trying to earn it. You're still trying to work it up. Still trying to lather up a good enough performance where Jesus looks at you and says, yeah, I think you're good enough now. But only if you stay that way. You know? Which none of us are going to do. Right? So we need that perfect sacrifice. So, I want to look at this in creation. If you go back to... Can you go back to Colossians? Go to the verse right before that. Yes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And go ahead. For by him, and I'll leave it on this screen for a while. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. What a huge sweeping statement. He's throwing that out there. They probably read this when they were in Colossae and thought, What? Man, he's really laying it out there. He's really taking a shot right now. What we understand is that Jesus Christ, and I didn't say God, I said Jesus Christ, even though He is God, He is fully God, it was Jesus was the architect of all creation, it was thought of, it was escalated through, and it was done for Him. He was the mind behind it, He was the muscle behind it, and He was the object of it. All of this happened through Jesus Christ. Okay, We see this also in John 1. It says this, in the beginning, you don't have to turn there, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So, what does this mean? If Jesus did it, and He thought it, and He 
did it, he performed it, he muscled it, he motored it, and he did it for him. What does that mean? It means that there is intent and purpose in creation. That's what it means. It means that there's a purpose for you. You know, I'm going to refer to something called secular science. And now listen, I'm going to make a distinction here, and it is being recorded, so I know I'm going to be very careful here. I don't think science is bad, okay? I love science. In fact, science was God's idea. Science is only fun for me because God thought it up. And when I study science or teach my kids science, really good science, it's a glory to God. It's a way to worship God by saying, look at you, God, you're glorious. That there could be photosynthesis. You're glorious, Father, that the atoms could be staying together by the power of your hand. You're glorious. I mean, it's good. I love good science. But when I say secular science, I'm talking about a science where God has been removed from the equation. First thing they teach you in the university when you go to Biology 101 is that everything we do as far as experimentation, as far as teaching you, just go ahead and know we're considering there to be no God in the equation. To have God or religion anywhere in this or touching this ruins this. They look at it as if you're dropping oil in water. Okay? That is what I would consider secular science in this, right? Secular science says there's no purpose to creation. It'll tell you how it works. It will tell you how it comes together, how it fits, but it can't answer. It can't. It's not qualified. It can't answer whether there's purpose or not. It's just a stack of accidents, genetic mishaps, Lucky mud, good combinations of genes coming together that can outcompete another set of genes that were already together to give birth to something that outcompeted something else. But when all of that's done, that's just telling you how things work. It doesn't give you any purpose. That doesn't answer life's big questions for you. It doesn't, it doesn't answer why you can't get along with your wife. It doesn't help you. It doesn't help you understand why you're so upset at work. It doesn't help you understand what faith is. It doesn't answer any of these huge, huge questions. Whenever I was an atheist, whenever I was studying all of this, whenever I was struggling, and I was starting, the engine was starting to turn, I was starting to see this, and I thought, you know what? What is the purpose? I remember asking a, a professor once, I think he's my advisor, and I said, you know what? What is the purpose? I mean, if all of this is true and there's no God in the picture, what is the purpose of all of us being here? He said, to evolve. To evolve, to produce something better than the last generation. I said, I know, I know, I get that. I get that. I get that that's why there's evolution, but what is the purpose? I mean, why? What's the why? Why? He says, because. Well, okay, but why? I don't know, just so that everything can work out in the end, that we can be nice to each other and there can be peace in the world. I said, but why? Why do I want that? If I'm here to outcompete, if I'm here to be the fittest and survive, then what do I care? What do I care if there's peace in the world? What do I care? I'm, I'm here to win. I'm in it to win it. That's what survival of the fittest is, isn't it? And he said, yes, it is. I was having a hard time understanding how the logic was lining up. Because I thought, if that's the case, and we we're all here because we were a product of something else, then why are we helping struggling nations? Why are we sending aid and people? I mean, if, if a tsunami wipes out a people group, then just let it. Just let it. If there's starvation over here, then just let it. I mean, it's just strengthening the gene pool. I mean, we didn't need them anywhere. They're holding us back, right? Why even deal with any of that? What, not struggling nations. What about struggling babies? What about handicaps? Why have anything? What about old people? Why have anything to do with that? If we're just here to live, if we're just here to evolve and out-compete, then why do the things that we're all doing? It seemed hypocritical to me as a student. I didn't understand it. It's because creation without God, a secular setup of science, cannot answer your big questions. 
It can mock it. It cannot do anything else. In fact, in, I'll tell you, in that model, I was really serving myself. I was glorifying myself. We would all agree that it, without Christ, that's really the lifestyle that we end up living. It's one where we glorify ourselves. It's set up around ourselves. We orbit ourselves. It's really, me will be in most sentences that you speak. Right? If that's the case, you will never love anyone outside of yourself more than you love yourself. You will never be able to love someone else more than you love yourself if it's all set up about glorifying you, which is creation with no purpose, with no God. Jesus Christ, He came and He kicked on that trend of humanity, though. He did. He said, watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to love you more than myself, and I'm going to show you that what I created, how I created, and why I created has purpose. It has a drive. It has an intent. Not only that, science, listen, and this might be a sidetrack, but I think it's worth saying. Science, not only does it not start everything, it doesn't keep everything either. It doesn't keep things running. God himself actually keeps things going. We don't have a God that just started the whole world, kicked it, till it started getting going and it started turning and getting some movement and he goes, okay, now that that's going on, I can deal with human affairs. Now that the rain is falling, now that the atoms are doing what atoms do, now that the fish are swimming, now I can deal with something else. I don't have to think about that anymore. It's even God who even keeps it working together. This is what it says. You don't have to turn there. It says, and in him all things hold together. That's what it says in this. And in him all things hold together. And in Hebrews it did say, And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Water stays water because God says so. Think about it. This is real time. This was made from a tree. It was only a tree because he said it was going to be a tree. Wood stays wood because he says so. The air you breathe doesn't turn into methane gas. Like that. Why? Because he says so. Atoms collide the way they do. Why? Because he says it does. Rain falls... The same way it always does? Why? Because he says it does. He keeps it going. He doesn't just start it. He keeps it going. That's why I started as a young man thinking how arrogant it is for me as some college student that knows it all. You know, head of my class. So smart. I'm so smart. That I'm doing all these cute little experiments with these cool expensive machines to prove that there's no God, but I'm having to rely on the fact that He's keeping everything together just so I could even do the experiment. Light stays light, so I could even write on a piece of paper that's staying paper. And the whole time God is saying, I'm the reason it's keeping it all. It's the reason nothing goes to chaos. It's the reason that water's not turning into gas and we don't just melt in a puddle. I mean, God is the one that keeps everything together. This is what William Barclay says. He says, Every law of science and of nature is, in fact, an expression of the thought of God. It is by these laws and therefore by the mind of God that the universe hangs together and does not disintegrate into chaos. So why does this matter? (laughs) That's just a lot of science. and Why does it even matter? Why does God do that? Why doesn't He just wipe it out? You know what? After Adam and Eve jacked it all up, after they gumped that thing up, why didn't God just say... Boom, we're starting over. Why, did, why didn't he just wipe it all? Why after Noah? Why, why Noah and his family? He flooded the whole earth. Why didn't he just knock them out too? Why did he go through all the trouble of preserving a remnant? Why did he do that? Why didn't he just start all over? Why does he keep things? 
The way that he started things is because he's developing a stage. He's creating a stage to play out the most magnificent moment in human history, which is the cross, the good news for you and me, the passion for Christ for us. He was building a stage for us to see something that was worth glorifying more than ourself. That is why we have what we have. Secular science, science without God, cannot be glorified because it's only doing what God told it to do. It's only doing what God told it to do. It's like a statue. It's like having an artist look at a big chunk of marble and saying, you know what, I'm going to make a statue out of this. And in their mind, they're thinking about where all the curves are going to be, holes, texture, height. And then they start taking tools to that marble, chunking it down to look like something very beautiful, right? And then they're done. And then they have a beautiful statue. And then you and I walk by the statue and we're like, that is really beautiful. But the artist gets the glory for that. It was a creation by their hand. We don't go, oh, that's such a beautiful statue. It just got here by itself and how glorious it is. And we're going to worship it and center our lives around it. That would be odd. We'd look at that and we'd say, dude, what are you talking about? Someone did that. Uh Uh-uh. It just came about. No, no, someone did that. Jesus thought of it. Then he muscled it through. It was by him. It was through him. And then it was for him. That's what creation was all about. Now, talks about his rule. It says this. Go ahead and go back to, I think it's the 17th. Go to back to 1, 7, no, 16. Colossians 1, 16. For by him, mm, yes, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created. So it's talking about his rule here, what he has dominion over. So what does he have, what does he rule over? What does he have dominion over? Everything. Everything you can see, he rules. Everything you can't see, he rules. Everything you understand, he rules. Everything you don't understand, he rules. He doesn't care. If it's, if it exists, he owns it. He rules it. He runs it. He created it. He thought about it. He put it into action. He contains it. He keeps it. It's for a purpose. It's above all things. Jesus Christ is king over creation, over every single thing. This is what this means for us. Because when we look at this and we see a a church like Colossae receiving a word like this, you have to ask yourself what's going on. There are a few places in the, in the Colossian letter where Paul is talking to this church because they are worshiping angels. That sounds weird, doesn't it? They would worship angels and they would see like a, like a pyramid scheme, you know, of angels. Some were more stronger than others and some were positioned in different places and some would get worship a little differently than others. There would be gradation to even how they would worship angels. Paul actually takes a couple pops at that here and we'll talk about that in a minute. But they were worshiping angels and Paul says, why? Why would you do that? Jesus is king over everything. Over everything. This is what F.F. F. Bruce says, another theologian. He says, If it is asked whether the spiritual forces that Jesus Christ defeated on the cross are to be regarded as personal or impersonal, the answer is probably both. Whatever they are, either kind, it's holding the human soul in bondage. And Christ has shown himself to be their master. And those who are united to him by faith need to have no fear of them. That means you don't pay any tribute to anything under Jesus Christ. You don't have to fear anything under Jesus Christ. You don't have to honor anything that is under Jesus Christ because he is Lord and King over it all. He is. That means you don't have to pray to your old Aunt Sally. You don't have to do that. You don't have to pray to old Uncle Fred. 
Because Jesus Christ is king over all creation. You don't have to pay any tribute to a patron saint. Why? Because they're not in charge. Because they don't control anything. Because Jesus Christ is king of all creation. He is the one that controls everything. If an atom touches another atom, if a house sells, if your marriage is fixed, a patron saint, Uncle Fred had nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. It's because Jesus Christ did what Jesus Christ does. That's what happens. It says this in Colossians 2.18. It says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. That means that there's no demon that has access to your life without God seeing it, without God controlling all of that. Not even the devil himself. Some Christians are so scared, they don't even want to mention the word devil because they feel like they're vulnerable if they do. They don't like talking about it, they don't like thinking about it because they think that they're going to be in trouble and attacked if they do. They don't do anything. They can't touch you. They can't harass you. They can't have anything. They don't have access to you besides what God gives them. It says this in Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Let me tell you, the only reason every scary movie in the world that's ever been made, the only reason it's scary is because it portrays a situation where evil wins and it always has access to you, right? God, God's absent. No one's going to save you. There's like nine characters, and they're disappearing one by one. You know? That's what the movie goes. And nothing can stop the evil force. You can't, you can't stop it. You don't know what to do. It's like half spirit, half man, or maybe it's all a man, or maybe it's all spirit. But that's why, that's why scary movies are scary. It's because this evil force has access to you, and there's nothing you can do about it. But let me tell you, that's not the case. Jesus is king. Jesus is king over all of creation. He is. So what? So what does all this matter? Why does all of this matter? I mean, we've talked about a Jesus now. A Paul describing a Savior to you and a Savior to me that is above all things, before all things, He rules all things, He's ahead of all things. It was done by Him, it was done through Him, it was done for Him. I mean, you can't be more... He's just gushing over how huge Jesus Christ is in this. That's how he's starting this letter. He's like, before I get to the details, here it is. Boom! Deal with that. And then we're going to talk about some of these things a little bit later on. Why? Why does all that matter for us? Because there's two different kinds of people in here, I think. And this is, this is where we'll, I'll be done in seven minutes, I think, precisely. <laughs> I think for some of us, I think some of us are very, very far from God. And it's because you know you're far from God. Some of you are not sure if you're far from God or not, Right? Some of you have grown up in church, and so you're not quite sure if you're far from God because you've grown up in church and you've been around things of God, or you've been in a Bible culture, but you don't feel close to God. So you're kind of in this weird in-between place. You'll hear people say, are you saved? Are you not saved? And you're not sure how to answer that question. Some of you are in that place. Some of you know, like I did when I was a young man, I knew I was far from God. Some of you are somewhere in between that and very good. right? If that's you, let me tell you, in a creation, in a creation absent a God, absent a purpose, absent a Lord and Creator, you live in a reality where your big questions, your big questions have no answers. And that's because science, once again, is not qualified to answer them. It doesn't have the credibility to weigh in on what purpose is in your life. All they can do to your answers, your big questions, the only answers they can do is either Holocaust or medication. That's about it. 
There's not a whole lot they can do to fix your big, 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 big problems. Secular science, a creation, a reality with no God, doesn't give you a lot of help. You'll have problems, and what it will do with its philosophy and its brilliance, it will mock your problems because you're a genetic defect. Or you have a genetic defect. Maybe your dad was depressed. Maybe your grandpa was depressed. Maybe you've always had anxiety. And all they can do is either mock it and say you're weaker than the dude next to you who doesn't struggle with that, and here's some medication. Right? That's all we have waiting for us. And this was me for a little while. And I was scared because if life had no purpose, that means I didn't either. And that was difficult for me to chew down. And I couldn't even envision a rescue out of that. I didn't even know what to do with it. All I could think about was my only salvation was out-competing the guy next to me. Making better grades. You see, it's just social evolution. I might not take a gun and off him, but I'm going to beat him out of that job, right? I'm going to beat him out of that girl. I'm going to beat him out of that house. I'm going I'm to man up on him. It's the same thing. Because there's no purpose in it for me. It's just out-competition. It's all it is. It's all it's about. And I felt like all I was ever going to have without a Lord and Savior in my life was just more sleaze. And of course I'd try to cover it up. Of course I'd try to get rid of the sleaze, but it was always going to be there. Right? And maybe just some memories of a life that was a lot more innocent. You know? And that's the only rescue I had for myself. Because I knew that the only place I had to turn was to mock, be mocked, and to be medicated. And I was just tired, to be honest with you celebrating my own life and being my own king because I stunk at it. And if we're all honest, we're pretty crappy kings, aren't we? If we're king of our own domain, we do a pretty crappy job of that. We can't watch our borders well. Junk gets in. Our economy stinks. Crime is up. You know? We just do a bad job. Our life is a mess. And we know that if we're totally honest with ourselves. One of the most powerful revelations God ever gave me as a young, confused man is that I was on a stage of His creation moving along to a reality of His authorship and the new reality I was in was driving forward. It had a purpose. It was moving forward to this giant climax, exclamation point in human history called the cross. It's called gospel for my life. Being made new and then to continue to go on to when Jesus Christ Christ came back to recreate everything. It was headed somewhere. It was driving somewhere. There was a mission to be on that was bigger than my little micro mission of just making it, being powerful, and having money. It was bigger than that. That was a huge revelation for me. And I began to see that Jesus Christ smashed what was mocking me. He smashed the sin that mocked me, even though I mocked Him. That was a passionate story for me I needed to have. He undid every teaching that I had. Here I heard that, you know, in order to survive, I needed to be genetically strong and biologically strong because there was no purpose. So in order to survive, that's what I need. Christ taught me that losing my life was the way to survive. (laughs) To be buried and lost in Him. I mean, that's totally backwards from what I'd ever heard. And I knew that a life of celebrating myself, leaving no hope, was now being swapped out for celebrating a Christ who is filling me with hope. And so let me tell you, if you're doing that now, if that's you, and you were like me, or you are like me, let me tell you, you need to take the crown off of your head and put it at the feet of the one who really wears the crown. Don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself. You're a bad king. If it's you, you struggle with that, you know you struggle with it, 
He's not even amused by your attempts to save yourself. What we do is we worship Him as King, first and foremost, by saying we are not King. That was a radical deal in my life. Whenever I did this, this is what it looked like. This was the difference between me growing up in churchianity, growing up in a Bible culture that was very thick and taught me things about God, but never really led me to the things of God, never really captured my heart, nothing really grabbed me. I wasn't believing the gospel. The big difference between that and that one night that was huge was the fact that I said, listen, God, I've always had these crowns. And sometimes I'll take this crown off and I'll put it back on. And and, and I kind of want to give you a little bit of this kingdom. Kingdom, but I want to stay king of this over here. My girlfriend, I'd like to stay king over there. I'd like to stay king in my career. I'd like to stay king over here. But you can be king of everything else. And he's saying, uh-uh, that's not how it works. The night that it all changed was when I said, you are king of everything. You can have my life. You can have my future, my future bride, my career. Whatever you give back to me, that's your decision because you are king of God most high. You are king of all. You were king. That was not how I got saved. It's like that. Nothing has been the same since then. Some of you, that might be you. Some of you, you might be at that place. And if your heart's pounding and if you're asking yourself, I wonder if that's me, it probably is. If it's something that's racing through your mind and you can't figure out, I think that's me, maybe it's not, no, he said this, no, and now it is again. If that's you, then that is, then you, you do need to call Jesus king of your life. You need to. Some of you who are sons and daughters of the king, you just, you have a lot of affliction in your life. And this is what I'm going to finish with. You're just afflicted. You're depressed. You're anxious. You're sad. You're broken. You're struggling. You're fighting. Let me tell you, there is nothing hurting you or threatening you that does not bow its knee to Jesus Christ. Nothing. Nothing comes into your camp without Christ knowing about it. There's no power or force or sin or person or circumstance or anything that intimidates Jesus Christ. That's what I love. I serve a God that cannot be intimidated. That gives me a lot of solace inside, right? Nothing. Nothing. Not even the devil. Martin Luther, he says, there is a devil, but he's God's devil. That means he doesn't even get away. He's on a tight leash, so to speak, right? I keep running into people over the years who are struggling with deep, deep, deep depression, anxiety, sadness, brokenness, right? I keep running into them. And let me tell you, I, I see it, I was one, and it tries to relapse on me sometimes. I get real panicky sometimes. I mean, you can ask my wife. I get real anxious, I, and I overwork, I overstress, I overthink things. I can get real. It tries to relapse on me. It tries to come back and taunt me. It tries to come back and mock me. It does. I know what that feels like. And it usually happens whenever I forget that God is superior to all. I forget that He controls the atoms. I, can, I forget that He makes the sun rise. I forget that He makes time tick. I forget that all these things happen and that nothing escapes His glance. And I start to begin that there are things. I start to begin to think that there are things that escape His grasp. That He can lose His grip. That things can happen without Him seeing it. And so the lie in my ear when I'm anxious and sad and depressed and isolated and I don't want to talk to anybody and I don't know what to do whenever that happens the lie to me is that God is powerless for me in that moment that he's confused he's afraid he's frustrated and he's intimidated and I'm on my own 
He can't provide for me, so I have to do it myself. I mean, he's good and all, but he's God. He's just not here anymore. And if God's not in control, that means that I have to be. And so I pick up my tools, and I do the things that I want to do, and I do it the only way I know how to do it, and the only thing waiting for me is more anxiety, more depression, and more everything. Because in my mind, I've got it trapped and running around up there that God has totally lost control. He has left the building. And it's up to me. You talk to your average depressed person, and that's usually what's going on in their mind. And I went, and I got medication, and I went and I looked into science and how it mocked me, because that's a disability, apparently. It's a genetic defect, apparently, that would lead me to be so anxious and so depressed. And I sat there in this thing for a long time until the gospel came and rescued me out of it. And then I met a God who never loses control. This is important for me. There is no affliction that you will ever endure that Christ cannot access you in. Listen, there's no affliction that you've ever endured, past tense, that He did not have access to you in. Now that puts a weird slant on God, doesn't it, a little bit? Luke, does this mean that He watched me go through that thing, and He watched me suffer, and He watched me get abused, and He watched me in that affliction, and He didn't do anything because He had control? He had access, but He didn't jump in. He didn't save me. I was tapping out. I needed help. Now, are you saying that He didn't do it? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying He watched you go through that abuse and that affliction and hit that pothole and scream out for help, and He did do something. He defeated that sin that was tormenting you because He came to earth. He put on skin. He lived this life. He breathed this air. He lived among the muck and the mire and the sleaze. And yet he was perfect, and he was hung on a cross, and he did this to defeat the very thing that is defeating you. He did this to, to, to mock the very thing that is mocking you. He did this to free you from the very thing that put him on the cross. It's very important. Jesus didn't do that to you. Sin did. Jesus didn't hurt you. Jesus didn't abuse you. Sin abused you. Jesus didn't leave you. Sin left you. The gospel for us is this, that even though the cross looked like it was getting way out of control, didn't it? I have to admit, if I was one of those dudes, if I was like Peter or John, I'd have been like, whoa, whoa, pump the brakes, what's going on? I mean, okay, any minute now he's going to pull out of this. Any minute now it's going to be like a puff of smoke, like a magic trick, and he's going to be over here instead of up there, and, and, I, and he's going to be a king, and we're all going to be a part of it. And When is this going to happen? I mean, when is all this going to come to... I would have freaked out. I would have been freaking out. I would have been very anxious. But God knew the whole time it was totally under control. He knew it was going to happen. It was actually premeditated. He actually had that moment on the cross in mind before he created the first Adam, before he poured the first ocean. He knew that that moment was going to happen. It says this in Acts 2. Don't turn there. This is Peter talking. He says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So why would God do that? Why would he plan for men to kill Jesus? Why would he do that? Sounds weird. Why would God go through all that trouble? To plan it that men would kill... He did it for you. To make mediation for you. To stand in the gap for you. To take what you couldn't take. To perform what you could never perform. To glue together what we broke. To reconcile what we wrecked. To pacify a war that we declared. He did all of that for us. That is exactly why it's put into creation.